Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It's great to have you tuned into the program. And one of the things I am always going to say on this day to anyone, Irish or not, is Happy St. Patrick's Day. Although that is not the real thing that we're celebrating today. That's not the real thing we're commemorating. It is the two-year anniversary of two weeks to flatten the curve. And that in and of itself, I think, is a very odd thing right now. Two weeks to flatten the curve has become two years. And my goodness, is it's on like it's just ongoing now. We still have restrictions in place. We still have all of these things that are happening right now, especially if you're unvaccinated. We're going to be talking about a lot of that later on. But first and foremost, I want to talk about the big news on the beat that I've been covering, and that is the firearms beat. You might have gotten a glimpse of our first guest there. We uh, we don't get to present him in a, a great uh, show of surprise right now. But uh, the government did something. I don't want exactly want to give them credit for doing it because they didn't do it for the right reasons. But at this point, I'll take the right policy for the wrong reasons because the government has extended the amnesty that it set for guns that it banned uh, summarily in May of 2020, notably the AR-15, but a lot of other firearms as well, about 1,500. And then a couple of weeks later, they added more to the list and and all that jazz. And what the government has done, because that amnesty was put in place for two years, So originally, in May of 2022, so six weeks from now, those guns were going to be prohibited outright, and if you were holding one, you would have been a criminal. And the little token, the little breadcrumb that the government gave you when they announced that ban was, well, we'll buy them back from you. And you may remember, I did a documentary about this that was released in the summer called Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. Let's play the trailer of that, if you don't mind. We are closing the market for military-grade assault weapons in Canada. It really is my identity. It really is my culture. And it's every bit as legitimate as anyone else's culture. We're just regular people that go out and, and have this as part of our being. We are not the problem, the guns are not the problem, right? It's the public's perception that has become the problem. On one hand, I'm I'm literally, I'm going to the Olympics, I get to represent Canada, is one of the greatest privileges that I ever get to do, that I get to wear the maple leaf and represent Canada. It is such a privilege. And on the other hand, I'm so devastated that I have no idea if at some point I'm gonna get thrown in jail because I've missed I've missed something. Uh, They actually pulled up, they got out, they had their guns drawn, and it was pretty much, I opened the front door and they're like, you're under arrest and you need to come with us.
Now, it's no longer coming soon. You can watch the whole thing over at Assaulted.ca, and even though it came out in the summer, it's still very much a real problem. And the reason I'm playing that and talking about that now is because part of the government's prohibition has been that a lot of gun owners and also gun business owners have been saddled with inventory they purchased in good faith lawfully inventory which is now in limbo they can't sell it they can't use it many of them can't return it to the distributors or the point of sale and this kicking the can down the road to october 2023 solves one problem but it prolongs another so let's talk about this with rod yeltaka who you saw in that trailer there the executive director of the canadian coalition for firearm rights rod good to talk to you sir thanks very much for coming on today thanks for having me andrew so obviously you have been pushing, the CCFR has been pushing in a very costly lawsuit for an injunction that would uh, basically stop this uh, in its tracks. Now, this is not exactly what you want because the policy is still in place, but what's your immediate reaction to the delay of it, to the delay of that amnesty expiring? Well, it's it, it's what a responsible government would do. And, and when I say responsible government, you know, in, in relation to the liberal, current liberal government, it's, you know, I use that term loosely, um, but this is what you'd expect, right? They, this amnesty was to protect law-abiding gun owners that purchased their firearms legally. And, and, and by virtue of that is a, is a community that is in full compliance with the law at all times. Um, and that continuing to hold these firearms, you'd expect that they would extend that to not make us criminals while they get their act together with their buyback. Yeah, and there was a story I was working on as recently as last week that this kind of sucked the wind out of here, but I'll share it on the show because I learned that a lot of businesses that have been saddled with inventory that's now prohibited, so a lot of the businesses that we talked about in Assaulted, which the CCFR was a very generous supporter of, of the production of, that for two years now almost have had, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars of firearms they, they cannot do anything with. And what was interesting is that I got a hold of, of messages that the government sent out to some of these businesses within the last month, inviting them to participate in a consultation process. Now, this is, again, coming about 22 months after the amnesty was put in place, and they're only just now getting around to the idea of asking the people affected by this what it's going to mean for them and, and what a buyback should look like. So it, it sa says to me that this whole thing, which the government said was deliberate ev evidence-based policy, was drawn up on the back of a napkin when they had some political capital in the wake of the horrific uh, Porta Peak shootings. Well, yeah, it was right. It was, it was never let a good, you know, a good crisis go to waste and they weren't ready. And a gun buyback is not an easy thing to construct. And uh, it's not a, it's not a moral thing to do. So in the interim, if you, if you have been paying attention out there is they've been trying to wag the dog with all of these television commercials, like, you know, firearm related violence equal, you know, is, is a result of civilians owning firearms, right? Licensed individuals owning firearms. Mm -hmm. So definitely our, our gun ban is, you know, it's good policy. So make sure you vote for us next time there's, a, there's an election. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a big mess. It's really just a political effort. And I think this is uh, the, the, the trouble implementing a buyback, the trying to wag the dog with all of this, uh, all of this uh, um, tens of millions of dollars worth of advertising, the focus groups, right? It's, it's a political exercise. And, uh, and they're, trying to, uh, they're trying to save that effort, I think. Yeah, and, and they've spent millions and millions of dollars without buying back. I mean, I, I have issues with the word buying back because it was never the government's in the first place. But semantics aside, they've spent millions and millions of dollars on this without so far buying back a single one of these firearms. 
Yeah, well, they're still doing focus groups, right? We had a member that is uh, on the board of a, of a gun club uh, in Eastern Canada, and, and he, send, you know, he sent us the, 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 the questionnaire, right, the survey. You know, would you be interested in mailing through Canada Post, mailing your, your AR-15 in and us sending you a check? I'm like, what? Mailing, <laughs> mailing so-called assault-style, you know, uh, firearms uh, in the mail system? I, you know, I've got, I've got mail that's gotten lost. I haven't gotten T4s before, you know, much less my AR-15. Yeah, your, your AR-15s in the mail will become the new, the new slogan. Yeah, right. You can see them running around in a panic trying to... <laughs> trying to uh, get this done, but the delay does not, does not bother me at all. The longer it's delayed, the better. Our, our, our property is still in our possession. It gives time for the CCFR's lawsuit against the government, that all of this is against the, uh, against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and also against the law administratively. That gives us time to, to get that done. You know, I don't mind the delay at all. Yeah, and also, I mean, we're talking about a minority parliament here. October 2023 could bring us into election territory as well. Uh, and that, I think, is uh, is an important part of this timing. I don't, I'm leery to you advance this argument because I, I don't want to make it seem like I, I at all agree with this. But just to use the government's messaging for a moment, they believe, as Bill Blair has said, and as Justin Trudeau has said, and as uh, Bill Blair's replacement, Marco Mendicino, has said, that these guns are killing machines. That's all they are. They're weapons used for murder. They're meant to kill all these people. And they need to be taken off the streets and taken out of law-abiding gun owners' hands because there's no lawful reason to have one of these. If that is what you think... Letting someone keep it for an extra 18 months longer would suggest that maybe there isn't this firearms emergency that involves guns owned by the law abiding. Well, well, of course. Right. I mean, we've Canadians have had these guns for up to 60 years. Right. We've had these guns for a long time. They're legitimate, legitimately used for hunting and sport shooting, contrary to what the government says. And they have been for decades and decades. Yeah. I mean, this was completely unnecessary. And you know, like I said, you know, the big thing to look for from the government in their behavior right now is them running around trying to legitimize what they did because there's there's really not a lot there. So let's talk a little bit about the lawsuit here. Now, you were not successful in getting the immediate injunction at that very early stage. But as you noted then, and I think we talked about it on the show, the case is still ongoing. So where is it now and what's the main argument? Because you said there's a charter argument there and also an administrative law argument. So when, when, when we're talking about the charter argument itself, it's, it, it gets, really, gets really detailed. So I'll just use plain language. We're asking the court to consider the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms um, and an answer, can the government take whatever it wants from anybody, anytime, for any reason, um, without explanation or justification? And, if, and if, just, if justification is there, like, what does that really mean? Like, does it have to be based on facts or based on statistics or what that is. So, cause right now the government, in our opinion, illegally banned those guns. So the administrative side is that in the criminal code in section 117, it says you cannot ban a gun that is reasonably used for hunting or sporting, sport shooting, right? And of course these guns not only are reasonable for that, they've been used that way for 60 years, mm -hmm. right? Like it's not even that we're making that claim. It's like, it's, it's like history right there. So that's the administrative part. And the charter challenge really is about property rights. Can you own anything? And if you remember, Elizabeth May proudly stood up in the, in the, in the House of Commons and crowed to everybody how mistaken we are with our name, you know, firearm rights, having firearm rights in, in, uh, in our name, that 
you don't have firearm rights in Canada. In fact, you have no rights to own anything at all. No rights to property. She, she, she wears that like a badge of honor. So we're trying to say at least, you know, federal court, give us an answer. Do you have the right to own anything at all? Yes or no? Because if the answer is no, we just want to know that. Once and for all, if that, if that answer is no, and we, at least we know what kind of country we live in and we know what needs to be fixed. Yeah, I think that's an important point, and I've always appreciated how you do approach it from the property rights point of view, because there are a lot of people that don't get guns, and they may never get guns, they may never be interested in them, but they understand owning something, they understand having something, and then the government saying, this is no longer yours, this is no longer something you get to enjoy, and it, it bothers me immensely that more people don't see that. The more people don't understand the precedent here of what's happening if you do license government to do one thing. I, I mean, not to compare things that are not related, but the Emergencies Act is a great example of this. You can hate the convoy, you can hate what they stand for, but that doesn't mean you have to uh, set aside your discomfort about the longer-term implications of this. And the same is true of, of government confiscation of your property. I mean, compensation or, or not, if they are forcing you to sell it to them, it's confiscation. Well, it is, right? And this should be, you know, it's very hard because it has to do with guns. And, and you're right, not the majority of Canadians don't understand guns because they don't own them, right? Um, but this, this has everything to do with just fundamental, like very fundamental level freedoms. Like, can you own anything? Yes or no? And, and you know, it's, it's issues like this don't come to the forefront until the government does something you know, so kind of egregious that at least a large group of people stand up and be like, well, that's not consistent with your promise that I can own things and that I can live my life as long as I'm not bothering anybody. I have liberty, right? Mm -hmm. um, I can associate with people that I want to. It's not up to you who I'm friends with. Like these are fundamental things and people don't really think about those things until those things are being infringed upon. So in this case, property rights have been infringed upon. We have a very clear cut case and I'm curious you know, I don't I don't blow smoke in any direction. Um, so I'm not telling people, you know, we're going to take the government to court. We're going to kick their butt or whatever, because it's in the charter. I want to know how fair and how honest, you know, the Canadian system is, both the judicial system and whether the charter actually means anything like that's what this is really about. Because, like I say, win or lose, I just want the answer because that's really important to know. Yeah, and the problem is you're not dealing with a government that is conveying this issue honestly at all. And, and it's not just about the odd person you encounter that has never handled a gun, so they don't know them. It's not a world they know. It's about people that are being willfully obtuse. I, I want to play a clip here and get your response to it of Marco Mendicino. So he's the public safety minister now. He, he's replaced Bill Blair, who I think was your, your prime nemesis in government for quite some time. But, but I want you and, and the folks listening in to hear how he describes this. We've also introduced stronger and responsible gun controls, including a ban on assault-style weapons like AR-15s, which guns have no other purpose than to kill. Now, this order in council, which was uh, issued in uh, May of 2020, has already seen more than 1,500 different firearms from being prohibited from being sold in Canada. And in the near future, we will be launching a mandatory buyback program to now get these guns out of our communities and off our streets. 
again, that link between guns that are lawfully owned and the gun crime that is plaguing the streets of Toronto and Surrey and other communities in Canada. How do you go up against that when, when this is just said so easily, so readily, despite how devoid of a fact basis it is? Well, it's incredibly difficult, right? And especially when it comes from legacy mainstream media and it comes from the government, those two entities are very, well, they're most powerful forces in the country. So it's very difficult. I mean, the key for us, as far as our organization is, we just, we have to, we have to communicate directly with everyday Canadians and somehow, somehow we have to educate them that Marco Menachino was talking about firearms that were prohibited back in 1977, right? There are no assault weapons in civilian hands other than a handful of people like movie armorers and manufacturers that make guns for the military or whatever, right? Normal people do not have assault weapons and they will use those terms interchangeably. Um, but yeah, I mean, to answer your question, it's it's incredibly difficult, right? Because we're just everyday gun owners saying like, well, we responsibly own these guns. We haven't done anything wrong. We've done nothing but comply to every ridiculous rule because a lot of the rules are ridiculous. <laughs> and we've complied without, you know, without exception. Now, you know, and, and our effort really is just to be left alone. So it, it is a really difficult thing, but we do a lot of work in public relations. We do, you know, television shows and explainer videos, and we take out ads and billboards and, and marches and, you know, tours and all kinds of different things. But it's, it's a real challenge. Yeah, and one of the things that I, I found very striking when Assaulted came out, because I was worried, is this just going to go into that echo chamber that a lot of uh, pro-firearms content does? And, and certainly the firearms community was a big booster of it, and I'm grateful for that. But I, I was very touched by the number of emails I got, specifically on the episodes focusing on business owners. Because people understood in the midst of the pandemic the idea of businesses that were facing these just very unfair hurdles from the government, things that made no sense beyond uh, beyond bureaucracy, beyond fair dealing, but, but actually things that just came across as, as punitive. And I, I felt that people were receptive to that when they heard the stories. But again, it, you still have to, you can only have so many of those conversations. You can only have so many one-on-one -on -one discussions with people to get those stories in front of them. And then all it takes is one shooting, the government gets up there and just starts uh, spouting off blatant misinformation, and to, which, which they've still never accounted for. I mean, I go back to the government uh, linking Canada's gun laws to the guns used in, in Portapec, even though we learned after they uh, issued this uh, prohibition that none of them were legally owned. None of them were legally acquired. Well, yeah, they were all illegally acquired. I'm, I'm, I'm a participant with standing in the public inquiry, the, the Mass Casualty uh, Commission, right? So I know exactly what went on there. I have access to all of the evidence. And none of the guns were legally acquired. Um, all but one were obtained through smuggling through the, you know, from the United States. This guy was a very well-known criminal and smuggler and abuser and known as a nut in the community. And, and by the way, I should just say that that's where all gun owners are completely happy to devote resources and money, which is to stop smuggling. <laughs> well, well, yeah, it's just called basic problem solving, right? But this is, it's not problem solving. It's, it's, a, it's a political operation. And, you know, the police let this guy circulate. I mean, they may not, they may, they may have been helpless to stop him. Maybe there wasn't the right laws or whatever to charge him with offenses. Um, and then on top of that, he disguised himself as an RCMP officer. So everyone had their guard down and the police left him alone as he went through his rampage because they thought he was one. Of, it's so point being is this to, to, to lay gun 
you know, further gun regulation or gun bans on this particular situation is it's absurd. It's lunacy. And, and unfortunately, I, I can't blame everyday Canadians for not understanding that because they're busy and they don't want to deal with it. And it's very negative, too. But it's just the injustice is 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 terrible. And we're doing everything that we can to stop it. Very well said. Just uh, before I let you go, Rod, I know it's early days, but curious if you have any early thoughts from a firearms advocate's perspective on the conservative leadership race. Um, I don't. Uh, we try to we try to stay out of the process of the leadership um, election as best we can. Um, but I haven't. Uh, I don't. I don't know all the candidates good enough to to provide an opinion. But we're just hoping that that somebody like I, I, the candidate doesn't have to give us everything we ever wanted. The candidate has to actually walk a, a, a line between, you know, leaving people like us alone and being able to win a general election. And I think a lot of gun owners, they get so angry at their own situation, they forget that. We need someone that has a chance to win in order to get anything. So to, where to find that middle line is, is difficult, but, uh, but we'll see in the days to come as we get to know those candidates better. Rod Giltaka, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Thank you so much as always, Rod. Thank you, Andrew. Always great to talk to Rod Giltaka. And again, if you haven't seen it, go back, assaulted.ca, four episodes. I think none of them is longer than 17, 18 minutes and a couple are shorter. So you can do the whole thing in a little over an hour if you'd like. And not only would I love for you to do that, but I'd love for you to, if you haven't encountered firearms in your life, to take something away from that. Because again, there are about 2 million licensed gun owners in Canada, if memory serves. And that, that is a minority. That is a minority of a minority. So there are obviously going to be in the country 34 million people that do not have a firearms license. And of those, sure, some of them may be in families where someone does. Some of them may have handled a firearm. But for the most part, people in Canada, especially in cities in many cases, don't even know that you can own guns in this country. They just have a life that is completely detached from that. And I will say, I have never met someone who had shot a gun that didn't understand why people like them. So I think that if you're ever having a debate with someone, if you can somehow get a gun in their hands and get them to a range, they, they might, you might not win them over on everything, but you'll certainly win them over on some things. So uh, my thanks again to Rod. We're going to be covering that. And, and like I said, it was only in the last month that the government started inviting some businesses to consult in this program that they said was all ready to go almost two years ago. And again, I'm not, I'm not dissatisfied with the delay. I'd rather they scrap the whole thing. But if they are going to keep it going, yeah, keep kicking the can down the road. Keep extending it another year and a half, two years. Extend it five years. Take until 2046 if you want, Justin Trudeau. I don't care. Uh, but at this point... They are now extending this so the amnesty, if you have an AR-15, a Mini-14, if you've got one of those 1,500 guns that was prohibited, you still can't do anything with it. You still can't use it. If you're a business owner, you still can't sell it. But at least you don't have to surrender it to the government, at least not until October 2023. So we'll cover that as it develops there. This is a, a fun story. I was going to do a whole Ukraine segment, but oftentimes, if you haven't seen, people comment on the books all the time. And if you've noticed, I got through a big stack of them here. But uh, what a lot of these books are is for something that I've been working on recently, just kind of for a bit of a leisure activity because I, I have no life and nothing is fun in the world anymore. Uh, COVID has ruined it all. They're books about Canadian foreign policy. So I'm actually quite fascinated by the history of Canadian foreign policy and by some of the ways that Canadian foreign ministers in the past have characterized what Canada is 
and where it is uh, that Canada's influence, if such a thing exists, comes from. And this goes right back to Pearsonian democracy in the 50s with uh, Pearson, uh, Lester B. Pearson, his pursuit of peacekeeping, and later on, the record he tried to establish of Canada as a middle power. So this is the buzzword, that Canada is a middle power, and this is where you get it from a lot of liberals, that Canada can be punchy and scrappy, and we can be the one that really packs a punch, even if we're not one of these great powers like, uh, well, like China and the U.S. at this point. But then you get Melanie Jolie that distills this down to a caricature but she doesn't quite know why it's a caricature. She's not in on the joke as she describes what Canada can contribute to the world stage. Take a look. Canada has played its role to support one of its best friends, which is Ukraine, because of our people-to-people -people ties, because of our common history, but because it was the right thing to do. And we'll continue to work with our G7 countries' partners, because we all know that Canada is not a nuclear power, it is not a military power, we're a middle-sized power, and what we're good at is convening and making sure that diplomacy is happening, and meanwhile, convincing other countries to do more. Canada is good at convening. So Canada, Canada is the Hilton Ballroom of world powers. <laughs> Canada, that, I'm actually good. That would be a good title. That would be a good title for a blog post. The Hilton, the Hilton Ballroom of uh, of world powers. Well, that's what we do. We have a table. That's all we can do. We've got a table that people can meet at. We can't say anything at the table. No one wants to come to our table. But by golly, we have a table at which the the adults in the room can sit. Does anything from that strike you as Canada being an adult in the room? And it's not just Melanie Jolie. I mean, this is the entire Trudeau-pian foreign policy here. This is a guy that was going around trying to court votes from tin pot dictators so Canada could get a seat on the UN Security Council and lost. He lost, plain and simple, I think, to Norway and Ireland, if memory serves. Stephen Harper tried to get a UN Security Council seat. Now, he didn't make it as significant a plank of his career to do it, and it was relatively early on. But even then, Canada did not get it. Canada didn't get it. No one around the world is looking at Canada and seeing a serious player on the world stage. And one thing that Harper did quite well in his foreign policy approach, I found, was that he didn't generally try to punch above our weight. He, he tried to see places where Canada could make an impact, and he did it, but he focused significantly on Arctic sovereignty. He focused significantly on relationships with the United States, even across partisan lines. By all accounts, Harper and Obama had a, a very close relationship. Counterterrorism. Again, a lot of the connections between Canadian and American intelligence agencies went back to there. So all of this is to say that being someone that has a realistic approach to Canadian foreign policy doesn't mean you think that Canada should just do nothing, that it's a total joke. It's about not looking like you're trying to be more than you are and do more than you are. One of my favorite stories about Justin Trudeau was the one from the G7 in Brussels, oh, I don't know, whenever it was, less than a year ago, and it was that Trudeau's advisors were like going around talking to all these people at the G7, trying to pump Justin Trudeau up as having this reputation as being the dean of the G7, and they thought that since Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, was retiring, uh, Justin Trudeau was the longest serving of the G7 leaders, so they thought that that would put him at the head of the table. 
Step aside, Emmanuel Macron. Step aside, Boris Johnson. Step aside, oh, Jen Stoltenberg of NATO. Step aside, Ursula von der Leyen of the European Commission. No, Justin Trudeau was the dean of the G7 because he had been kicking around since 2015. And there was a great, there was a great line in the story which was in Bloomberg about how Justin Trudeau was trying to insert Canada as a negotiator in the UK's dispute with the EU over trade in Northern Ireland and Ireland. And it was like that Canada kept offering to help and no one wanted to take Canada up on the offer. So Melanie Jolie says, oh, Canada's great at convening. Well, a load of good that is if no one trusts you and no one wants to sit at your table. I wrote in my column last week that Justin Trudeau's trip to Europe, where he decided he was going to go to Latvia and Germany and the UK, accomplished nothing. I, I said it was a win for Canadians in the sense that he didn't manage to dress up in Lederhosen, a beefeater outfit, or Latvian folk dress. So in that sense, it was costume-free, so Canada emerged somewhat more victorious than most other trips he goes on. But the reason I, I point that trip out is because at a certain point, if you're going to go to Europe during a war in Europe, it should be not because you just want to be seen, but because you have something to contribute. And I have yet to see one single thing that Canada contributed to the war effort in, in any case. I mean, whether it's to Latvia or to NATO or to Ukraine. And I'm not saying that Canada should be doing X, Y, and Z. I'm saying that if Justin Trudeau was going to go there and have this multi-stop, multi-country photo op tour, it would be nice to know he was doing something there. And again, he took a significant amount of his members of cabinet and staff there. This was not just one simple jaunt over by Trudeau or the foreign minister. He was there. Christian Freeland was there, who's the finance minister, who's still, I think, cosplaying as the foreign minister. Melanie Jolie, who's the actual foreign minister, ostensibly. Uh, Harjit Sajjan, I don't know if he was on this trip, but he took a, a parallel trip of some kind. So you have some pretty high-ranking Trudeau officials that are going over there. And at the end of it, it's, well, Canada is committed to helping take in refugees. Well, Canada was doing that anyway. So part of being a leader means understanding your country's own limitations. And I don't think being, to use the term I, I used a few moments ago, being the Hilton Ballroom of world powers is all that much to brag about if no one wants to sit at your table in the first place. But oh yeah, we're, we're good at convening. Just before we wrap things up here, let's talk a little bit about the two-year anniversary of Two Weeks to Flatten the Curve. I, I was going to play a clip of it, and then I was just so depressed. I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to go back in time there, because so much has not changed. A lot has changed, and a lot has not changed, if I can speak out of the both sides of my mouth here, because at the time, everyone was on the same team. Government didn't need to impose a sweeping lockdown for a lot of people because they were prepared to hashtag do the right thing, to hashtag stay home, save lives, to clang and bang the pots and pans for healthcare workers. You had uh, Italian opera singers that were singing from their balconies as they were totally locked in their homes. And in Canada, you had people that were seeing the carnage coming out of China, horror stories coming out of Italy, Iran, and saying, you know, we need to just do the right thing, look out for our neighbors, we don't know what we're dealing with. And a lot of people did step up, a lot of people did rise up. I was never fear-mongering about it, but I took it very seriously, I was very concerned, because again, we were trusting the experts. And the one thing that I would say has come out of the last two years is that the veil has dropped on a lot of public health leadership roles and public health affiliated politicians like the health minister, things we thought were agencies that conferred a level of authority 
that we've seen go down the road of being very political. If someone had told you more than two years ago that government had assembled a science table that was going to give recommendations and advice on science, I presume you'd probably be pretty receptive to whatever they spit out. But as we've seen in the last two years, science tables have made projections that are wildly wrong. They've made rec recommendations to solve one problem that create a host of others. And they have overseen policy that has absolutely devastated mental health, businesses, family well-being, child development. They've created all of these problems. And anyone who criticized these, anyone who said early on, and even to this point, ah, you know, I, I'm not sure that was the right approach, is called a crackpot, is called a science denier. The last two years is not yet over. This is not just something we amusingly look back on, like, oh yeah, remember that time for two weeks we all stayed in our homes and we all ordered Uber Eats and we all sang from our balconies and, and then we went back? That wasn't it. Because two weeks turned into two weeks longer. And then two weeks longer turned into... Well, once the case count goes down, and then it turned into, well, once there's a vaccine, and then, well, once there's a 60% vaccination rate, to once there's 90% vaccination rate, to once everyone is vaccinated, to then where we are now, once everyone is triple vaxxed and the case counts go down, and maybe we'll still keep the masks around just for the heck of it. I saw a video two days ago from British Airways in which they were uh, ripping off their mask. The flight attendant was ripping them off and saying that it was now going to be voluntary unless it's a requirement of a place that you are, are flying to or from. And they said, please respect anyone who chooses to wear one voluntarily, but they won't force it. And I said to that, I mean, a lot of people said, well, Air Canada, where are you on this? Don't look at Air Canada and WestJet yet. This is so far in Transport Canada's hands. Justin Trudeau is talking often about wanting to get back to normal. He's saying about how important it is for us to move past COVID and get back to normal, but he's only wanting to extend this to a certain class of citizens, to the vaccinated. If you're unvaccinated, you can go to eat at a restaurant in most provinces in this country now, but you still can't get on a plane. You can get into the country without a COVID test as of April 1st, only if you're vaccinated. If you're unvaccinated, society has not fully reopened to you. Some people who lost their jobs for being unvaccinated may never get those jobs back. Students who lost a year of education in universities and colleges because of their vaccination status may never be allowed to go back. Schools, for example, mainly in Ontario where I've seen it, but elsewhere as well, that are in provinces that are lifting mask mandates are still keeping those mask mandates in place. Now, I've said on the show in the past, I support the right for private businesses to make their own decisions. But there are two caveats there. Number one, universities, colleges, public sector employers, these are not private businesses. These are arms of the government, tentacles of the government. The other caveat is that we can still support someone's right to make a decision while rejecting the culture around it. And I support the British Airways position. You know what? Wear your mask. Don't wear your mask. That's on you. But we're not going to force everyone else on the plane to stay masked just to keep you happy. Life has risk. I woke up this morning with a bit of a stuffy nose. I'm like, have I got the Omicron variant? Have I got the, the Rho variant? Is this the, you know, the thigh delta Upsilon variant? Who knows what it is? Uh, I don't even know if we got to Omega yet. But I woke up and, I, and then I was fine. Did I pick up something? Do I have like a really, really, really minor strain of something? I don't know. But at a certain point, you can't live in fear just because someone tells you to. And that's where we are now. We are not seeing bodies piling up in the streets. 
We are not seeing hospitals overrun. We are not seeing a society that is unable to function. Quite the contrary. We're seeing a society in which people are fed up. People are getting back to their lives. You had in Ottawa for three weeks, a lot of people who were vaccinated and a lot of people who were unvaccinated all hanging out to support the convoy. You know, I've looked at the numbers, not a single uptick in Ottawa's hospitalizations for COVID. So maybe it's time to say that we can move on with our lives. But don't fall into this trap of thinking that just because life has moved on for you as a vaccinated person, that everyone else is able to move on as well. And I, I make no secret about it. I'm vaccinated, but I do this because I supported myself making a choice just as I support anyone else making a choice, whichever way they choose to go. And, and all of these politicians, especially at the federal level, that are talking about how things are getting back to normal, they're only extending normalcy to a certain class, which in and of itself is not normal. Segregating society like that is not normal. Imposing mask mandates is not normal. Absolutely not. So let's stop pretending that it is. And I have to make a point about this because I, I'm so fed up with people when it comes to masks saying, well, it's no big deal. It's just a little thing over your face. I, I saw someone on Twitter. I, I, maybe it's not the most original thought, but I liked it nonetheless. They say there, there'd be something minimally, minimally obtrusive about forcing everyone to wear a clown nose in their day-to-day -day life, but that still is not something we would accept as a reasonable requirement to put on society. Intrusions are intrusions. No matter how big or small, minor or major, intrusions are intrusions. And remaking, reshaping the way society functions is a big deal. Saying that you can no longer see someone's face. Saying that you can no longer eat your pretzels on a plane without like getting yelled at by the flight attendant because the mask was down and you had finished chewing that one particular pretzel. That is not a normal way to live. And never let anyone tell you that it is. We've got to end things there. We will be back tomorrow with a very special episode as we continue talking to Conservative Party of Canada leadership candidates. We'll have Roman Babber, who's the most recent entrant into the race. We'll have a full chat with him, I think about 30 minutes or so. And we also have extended an invitation to Patrick Brown and will soon to Scott Ashison, who's expected to announce his bid for the Conservative leadership on Sunday or Monday, if memory serves. So we're inviting anyone in the Conservative leadership race to come on the show. Let me know what you think about all those. Uh, do comment. And again, if you can support this, the, this work that we're doing to cover the conservative leadership race or anything else that we're doing, please head on over to donate.tnc.news. Andrew Lawton for True North with Canada's most irreverent talk show. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.